No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schaap. Over the next hour, on the 25th anniversary of the Houston Rockets 1994 championship, Hakeem Olajuwon joins the show. Memory is still so fresh in my mind. It's amazing to say it's been 25 years. <laughs> I just remember how physical the game was, especially against Patrick, you know, and uh, our matchup with uh, Mason and uh, Hopefully. And author Mark Cram takes us inside one of the most heated rivalries in sports history, Muhammad Ali versus Joe Frazier. They brought out the uh, best of each other inside the ring and the worst of each other outside the ring. And I wanted to examine the challenges that that created for Joe. And the question I had for everyone, is this animosity that he had built up over the years toward Ali, is this something that he took to his grave? Did he come to a place of peace about it? This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schaap. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, I'll be speaking with Mark Pran. His new book is a biography of Smokin' Joe Frazier, one of the greatest heavyweights of all time. But first, on the 25th anniversary of the Houston Rockets' first championship we speak to the man who is the heart and soul of that team, the MVP of the finals in both 1994 and 1995, the Hall of Fame center, Akeem Olajuwon. Akeem, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you. I'm, a, I'm honored to be here. Looking back now, a quarter century later, well, what are your most vivid memories of that run in 1994 when you guys won in the finals against the Knicks? It's just amazing to, because uh, the memory... It's still, it's still so fresh in my mind. It's amazing to say it's been 25 years. <laughs> you know, I just I just remember how 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 physical uh, the game was, especially against Patrick. You know, and uh, our matchup with uh, Mason and uh, Oakley, very very physical team, and we have Otis Top. You know, Robert Horry. So both teams match up so well, and uh, it was very, very, very tough, both ends, defensively and offensively. And, and of course, we're speaking with Akeem Olajuwon, the Hall of Fame center for the Houston Rockets, who also had an outstanding career at the University of Houston, uh, team reaching four Final Fours in his time there under Guy Lewis. Three. three final uh, I'm sorry, three Final Fours, I meant. Uh, and, of course, you know, that finals, the NBA Finals in 94 was a rematch of sorts for you and Patrick from the finals the uh, in the NCAA championship in 1984 in a, in a grudge match. How would you describe your relationship with Patrick? Well, I mean, uh, I think my career uh, with uh, Patrick, I mean, so parallel. My freshman year, we were in the final fours together in uh, New Orleans. Well, we didn't get a chance to play because we lost to North Carolina the first game, and they lost, they lost the final. The Michael Jordan team. Yeah. So we were in the finals four together at that time. And uh, I've watched his career because uh, we, were, we were so close. You know, the same style of basketball, a shot blocker, rebounder, the dominating center. So that was my 
uh, focus when I, when I was at college. I look up to Patrick and say, you know, this is the guy. When I see him, I see myself. We play the same style, the same game. So when we finally met in the finals, it was a different experience to play against such a dominant big man. And, of course, they won uh, in college. Then 10 years later, you know, we get a chance to meet again. You know, so it was very, very gratifying for me that this time it was my turn to win. We're speaking with Akeem Olajuwon, one of the greatest basketball players ever. Three Final Fours when he was playing at the University of Houston for Guy Lewis with Clyde Drexler as his teammate in two of those Final Fours. And then, of course, the back-to-back NBA titles in 1994 and 1995. First against Patrick Ewing, one of the greatest centers of all time in 94 when they were playing the Knicks. And then the next year against... Another one of the greatest centers of all time, Shaquille O'Neal and the Orlando Magic, who had reached the NBA Finals. And, I mean, when you talk about those battles, Akeem, (laughs) you against Patrick, you against Shaquille, the physicality of it, which you mentioned, it's so much different from today's game. Oh, I mean, when you play against Shaquille, I mean, you you have to also understand that was when he was much younger. So very active, so strong and confident. Uh, when you play against a team that won about 62 games, you know it was amazing. Uh, when you look back now, how do we, how do we, how do we overcome by beating them uh, to sweep that kind of team? And you know you can't, you can't. Now when you look back, you say, well, you do not accomplish something that is uh, uh, unachievable. You know, and now the, the more I watched how difficult it is to win championship, make me appreciate our championship much more. You know, uh, Akeem, uh, about 20 years ago on this show, when I was uh, hosting it with my, my father, uh, my father who's uh, who died in 2001, we had Guy Lewis on. And he told that great story about the first time he laid eyes on you. And um, we, we have his perspective on that famous story, the discovery of one of the great basketball players of all time. From your perspective, w- when you get to Houston from Nigeria... Uh, what kind of a reception did you get at the airport? Well, <laughs> well, first of all, nobody was there to pick me up. You know? no, <laughs> nobody. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, I, I called uh, the number I had with me, which was a basketball office in West of Houston. And I was told that, okay, I'll take a cab and we'll pay for it when we get, when we get here. So it was a good reception. That once once I met the coach and uh, I met the players and the assistant coaches, I was well welcome. I, I I think Guy Lewis told us back then, Akeem, that um you know he wasn't he was a little skeptical about some of the scouting reports he had gotten about you. You know he'd been told that you were terrifically talented, but you know he thought maybe some of these reports had been exaggerated. And then he could see you pulling up in the cab and getting out of the cab from the window of his office at the basketball office. And when he actually saw you, he, he ran out. <laughs> Do you remember it that way? Yes, yes. I, I remember because uh, the coach, uh, Christopher Pond, he was the coach that discovered me you know, in Nigeria. But he, the coach recommended a player previous years before from Venezuela that he thought he was seven footer. But the, uh, the 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 player became it was more like a six five. <laughs> it's only seven inches off. Right. So the coach <laughs> the coach was not taking his word seriously when uh, when when he when, uh, when when I was discovered. 
until 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 he actually until he actually saw me in person before he believed that that you know the coach was really you know, that's what happened there. A very pleasant surprise. We're speaking with Akeem Olajuwon, the Hall of Fame center from the Houston Rockets, uh, who is celebrating the 25th anniversary of his 1994 championship. I believe that is the only season in which any player ever in the NBA has been the league MVP, the defensive MVP, and the finals MVP. And, um, you know, Akeem, when I was watching you uh, as a teenager and a young adult, um, and when anyone watched you, one of the things that we all, we were always amazed at was the graceful knit, gracefulness with which you played the center position and um, the, the incredible moves that you had. And, and, and a lot of that was attributed to your, your grounding in the game of soccer growing up in Nigeria. How much did soccer contribute to your success in basketball? I think that was the, that was the, uh, the foundation. Uh, of the agility uh, to really, to really feel I don't really feel like a big man so feel very comfortable more like a, a small in a big man's body so playing soccer you know all, all these other players we play against are very very small and quick so I grew up playing with quick and uh, guys that are very agile so you think like them. So that really had a huge impact on my movement and comfort uh, in my footwork. You were in the vanguard of a number of outstanding players who came to the NBA, who came to the U.S. Uh, as college players from Africa. Among them, of course, uh, Minut Bol and Dikembe Mutombo uh, from Sudan and uh, from Zaire, now the Congo, respectively. Why aren't we seeing more great players from Africa in this era? Well, you know, I mean, there's a tremendous uh, uh, talent. And of course, with the NBA now with as a global sport where the destination, a lot of players dream to play in the NBA. And we have a lot of tremendous raw talent that didn't get a chance to develop before. But now, you know, the scouts are all over the world searching, you know. So we have a lot of our uh, great talent in Africa. And you can see the difference now. A lot of uh, players from Nigeria, from Congo, from Ivory Coast, from Cameroon. I mean, tremendous. Uh, and many more are still want to come and have potential to come. When you watch the game today, and here we are in the middle of the, you know, the NBA finals, um, and it's changed so much. Um, you know, we, we've got guys like Kevin Durant, who are seven feet tall and play the way that he does. And, and, and we've got so much, of course, three-point shooting, which was really just uh, in its infancy when you were coming into the league. How much do you recognize the game as it's played now? Well, I mean, when you see uh, players like the one that you, as you mentioned, you know, for, for, for that uh, uh, player of that size, with that ball handling skills, so, so that gives them freedom to be able to create and shoot over. You know, you can drive, you can pull up, you can post up. So he's more of a complete player, play good defense. And that's always the way I see the game. That's the way I, 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 I like to play the game, to be able to play a complete game. You can drive, you know, you can post up. If I'm bigger than you, I will post you up. If you're bigger than me, I'll take you outside. 
So you have something for everybody. And, uh, you know, Kevin Durant uh, demonstrated that, that part of the game. And uh, as for three-point shooters, it's amazing that three points now is more like a layup. I've seen guys that will be under the basket and they throw it back to three points. So I used to think maybe that was a bad decision. I would have made the three. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I see the consistency in the, a lot of great shooters in today's game. The game has changed so much. But, but the opportunity of the post is still available. That doesn't change. It's not just being, it's not being capitalized upon. Because if you see a guy that can really have a good post game, it's as good as ever. It's a, it's a great asset. So that doesn't change. It's just not, it's not capitalized you know, on. Who do you admire for their post play today? Uh, I, don't, I don't see too many players that, you know, that really take advantage of the post as, as they should. You know, I don't, uh, it's not like when it was you and Shaquille and, and Patrick and <laughs> Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you, in, in, in our time, you know, or if you if you if you take a jump shot, you, I mean, you settle, you settle for a jump shot. You can that's easy. You take an easy way out because you always get that. It's difficult. It's more difficult when you try to get the ball closer to the basket in the paint. That's more difficult. You get banged. Up. But if you get pushed up, you can always settle for a jump shot. But now, when you shoot a jump shot or a big man shoot three points, now it's a compliment. Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's a compliment if they can shoot threes. Well, so, you know, in our time, you can't. I mean, it's just like, more like the, you, 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 are, you are doing more damage to your team as a big man shooting threes instead of getting a high percentage shot under the basket. So the game has changed from that perspective that it's more now it's a compliment. But still, if the, the, you know, the, the coach, she, she still wants this big guy getting high percentage shot in the low. If you can shoot three points, that's great as a compliment. But you, first of all, the primary position or opportunity is to be able to get the post moves. Then if you can shoot from outside, you expand your game from that perspective. We're speaking with Akeem Olajuwon, who 25 years ago led the Houston Rockets to their first NBA title against the New York Knicks in seven games. And you guys won that title, of course, in 94. You would win the next year. Michael Jordan was out of basketball in 93-94. He came back in 94-95. I guess it was the middle of the season, and the magic with Shaquille O'Neal and Penny Hardaway defeated the Bulls in the Eastern Conference Finals. Do you ever wish that you got to play against Michael's Bulls in the Finals, or or, or are you happy with the way it went? To me, I mean... uh... People they say because Barca was was not there, but they, they don't give the credit to Orlando that actually they beat Chicago. You know, it was a great steal. Remember the last steal that Andy Sim made on, on Jordan. So he was there. They lost. You know, so that wasn't uh, discrediting the, the this championship. But as I think for me, if I if we play against uh, Chicago. If I dominate, they will say, okay, you don't have big men. So my, my contemporary, you know, I, play, I got a chance to play against uh, all of them. I guess the chance to play against Patrick, uh, David, and Shaq. Those are the guys I look up to. They are my contemporary. 
So that play against Jordan, it'll be, you know, it'll be interesting, but we don't play the same position. You know, so I'm very happy with uh, uh, our championship, how, how everything went. I wasn't, I wasn't dodging to say, I wish we didn't play Chicago. I was, I hope that we have opportunity because we played them during the regular season and uh, we felt very confident and comfortable. And of course, the regular season is always different from uh, players. What, what do you, what do you do now? You're, you're 56 now. Is that right, Akeem? 56, yes. You're 56. You, you've been in the Hall of Fame for 11 years. Um, you've been out of basketball as a player. Obviously, for a long time now. Where do you find in your life now the kind of fulfillment that uh, you found as a player in basketball? Well, you know, it's just uh, retired from basketball, but still, you know, uh, watching the game is still part of the game. I'm still consulting with the, with the Houston Rockets. I take care of my business, you know, invest me. I like, I like, I like development. I'm a land developer. I develop a lot of uh, properties. Uh, build my foundation, you know, for education and uh, in Nigeria for feeding. Uh, just uh, I feel, you know, I'm, I'm uh, taking care of my children. So I feel occupied. I still feel fulfilled. Except when I watch basketball now and I see a guy that just jump. I grab my knees, but I feel that pain on my <laughs> knees just by watching the game. And I walk out with game play two and three. So just, just to maintain that, that fun. <laughs> well, Akeem, it's, it's really been a pleasure. Um, uh, we've been speaking with Akeem Olajuwon, one of the greatest players in the annals of basketball, one of the great gentlemen of the sport as well, a two-time NBA champion, I can't believe it's been a quarter century, Akeem. Thank you so much for joining us here on The Sporting Life and reminiscing. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. The first Ali Frazier fight on March 8th, 1971 was arguably the biggest sports event, oh, in the history of the world. The man who won that fight doesn't get nearly as much attention as the man who lost that fight. Mark Cram Jr. is trying to rectify that with his new book, Smokin' Joe, The Life of Joe Frazier, a terrific new biography of one of the greatest athletes of all time, who is nevertheless in some ways underappreciated, and it is a pleasure to welcome to the show one of the best sports writers in the world, Mark Cram Jr. Mark, thank you for joining us. Uh, good to be with you, Jeremy. Mark, you come to this subject um, uh, biologically, I could say, <laughs> yeah. or genetically. That's true. <laughs> I, That's true. I, I know the feeling. Um, <laughs> yeah, we have something in common, I think. <laughs> yeah, you, Your dad, uh, also a terrific sports writer, of course, at Sports Illustrated in its golden age, in the heyday, covering Ali, covering Frazier, writing about their trilogy of fights. Um, why? Why did you... How did you make the decision that you wanted to dedicate so much time and such a large part of your life for the last few years to going in-depth on Smokin' Joe, someone that your father had written about so extensively? Right. Dad had written uh, all three uh, Ali Frazier fights for Sports Illustrated, and years later 
had written uh, the controversial book uh, Ghost of Manila in 2001, which was a kind of an essayistic approach to the two men. Uh, but as as time passed uh, and sort of the uh, as the dust settled, I just had a sense that uh, uh, it was worth taking a deeper dive into Joe. Uh, I wanted to write about him not just as a fighter but as a man and perhaps introduce him to uh, – a new generation of sports fans. So as much as possible, I wanted to build the book on fresh interviews with uh, primary sources, which is to say people who were still living and were around Joe and knew him intimately. You know, it was kind of a reporting job as much as a writing exercise. When you write about Joe Frazier, inevitably, of course, you're writing about Muhammad Ali as well. But one of the the purposes, one of the points of doing this is to remove him from the shadow of Muhammad Ali, but the same, but the same time you have to tell Ali's story because they're intertwined. How did you approach that uh, conundrum? Well, that was, that, uh, that was a real challenge because the point of the book was to uncouple him, his story from Ali's story as much as possible, but you really can't do that. So you have to weave in the, his relationship with Ali and uh, more or less kind of explain it uh, as you went along and sort of unravel it, uh, sort of take it, take a bit of a closer look at it. And, uh, you know, it's been said, I guess, by other writers that, uh, uh, you know, they brought out the uh, best of each other inside the ring and the worst of each other outside the ring. And I wanted to examine, you know, you know, the challenges that that created for Joe. Uh, and the question I had for everyone uh, that I interviewed was, is this animosity that he had built up over the years toward Ali, this is this something that he took to his grave? You know, did he did he find, uh, did he come to a place of peace about it? And I think I was able to answer that question at the end of the book. I think uh, there's a very tender scene there where I think Joe really, really reveals his true nature. We're speaking with Mark Cram Jr. about his new book, Smoke and Joe, The Life of Joe Frazier. Mark won the Penn ESPN Award for Literary Sports Writing back in 2013 for his book, Like Any Normal Day, A Story of Devotion, and he brings all of his, his considerable powers to bear in the telling of the story of the life of Joe Frazier, who was the heavyweight champion of the world, of course, uh, in that, that golden age for heavyweights. Uh, oh my, when, yes. When there was, uh, and, and that's part of the story here as well. It's not just Ali, but of course his fights with Foreman, the other fights, uh, Mathis. Jerry Quarry. Jerry Quarry. Um, you, <laughs> with Joe Frazier, um, and, and that relationship with Ali though, there was always the question, you know, how much of it is just generating interest? How much of it is authentic? How much um, did they truly understand each other? How much did they actually loathe each other? How much of it was for show? Well, in the course of, you know, dedicating yourself to writing this book, what conclusions were you able to draw about where selling the fights uh, overlapped into actual hostility? Well, it's an interesting question because uh, my feeling was that Joe's feelings about Ali waxed and waned over the years. Um, you know, uh, there were days where you would catch him and uh, he would be, uh, you know, he could see the value that from an early uh, early point in his career, he could see the value that Ali held for him. Uh, 
uh, financially and, and, and every other way. But uh, and Ali, uh, as you know, uh, uh, no one. He was a genius at working the crowd. But I got the sense as time passed that <clears throat> Ali was only too willing to up the ante. By that I mean he would see a crowd, and he would start on his shtick about being the greatest and what have you. And uh, he sort of wouldn't get the reaction that he was looking for or hoping for, and he would up the ante a little bit. And it, it really ble- uh, it uh, would bleed over into uh, racial invective that uh, that really seemed to stimulate, you know, the crowd. I, there's a section in the book, or a a, story, a scene in the book that where Ali's uh, up at his camp and he's uh, talking to uh, uh, some uh, he, he's greeting some of his fans after one of his workouts, and he's sort of. You know, going through his thing, and then as soon as he starts calling Frazier a gorilla, everybody gets worked up, excited, and he's really got him. And Ali's really got him where he wants it. Well, that that did not sit well with Joe. You know, uh, who is basically uh, he just under, didn't understand that why Ali had to go there, go that far. And Ali, of course, also literally went to. Philadelphia, basically, Joe's backyard, the <laughs> yeah. Hydu's powers, and, and, you know, came in on his territory. It was incredible. I mean, uh, he, while Ali was uh, on exile from the ring uh, for his uh, stance on the draft, he actually moved to Philadelphia and moved right into Joe's backyard and uh, and uh, was always showing up and sort of making a nuisance of himself. And, and it was just you know, Joe called it his skylarking, you know, Ali's skylarking. And it just got on his nerve. I mean, he would show up and and there'd be scenes in the street. Uh, there was an almost, uh, they almost came to blows at uh, uh, one day in North Philadelphia at the gym. The cops told him to take it to the park. And, you know, there were like, there were thousands of people lining up waiting for Ali and Joe to square off in Fairmount Park. I mean, it was, it was an absolute uh, circus, uh, and you know Ali obviously saw the value in that. Uh, Ali was uh, understood that you know it was much more than just a prize fight or sporting event that he was that 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 the two were that the two were heading for. Uh, it was a, uh, a international event, and and that was. Ali's gift and genius was that he was able to see things in magnified way that uh, perhaps Joe wasn't. Uh, Ali, you know, Ali was one thing and singular, and um, he represented so much to so many people, those who loved him and those who hated him. Frazier almost uh, inevitably becomes his foil, and not just in the ring, but in terms of perceptions of what they represented. And there were certainly those who used an ugly phrase to refer to Joe Frazier, as you write in the book, and, and called him an Uncle Tom. Where, where, did that, where did that come from? Well, there was, uh, there was, Joe was uh, 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 very close to uh, uh, Philadelphia Mayor Frank Rizzo. Uh, and, he, and he, who was the police commissioner and later the mayor. And he was a big, boisterous white man who, who uh, really uh, uh, climbed to power in Philadelphia in the '60s and the '70s. And uh, Joe uh, befriended him and became very close to him. And through that relationship, 
He later became friendly with Nixon uh, and uh, some of the other uh, Republican uh, leaders at that time. Now, the genesis of all this is interesting because Joe had come up from uh, Beaufort, South Carolina in the 50s, late 50s. He was he had on the tail end of the uh, great migration of African-Americans to the north. Um, and he went to New York and he was uh, kind of getting into trouble. He was stealing cars and what have you, although no record exists that he was ever arrested. His family sent him down to Philadelphia to live with his sister, uh, Martha, who was known as Maisie, who I spoke with for the book. And at that time, uh, Joe was 30 pounds overweight. He couldn't fit into any of his clothes. He really had no direction. And Maisie suggested that he go to the police athletic league, you know, and uh, she said, if you get into trouble down here, there's nothing I can do for you. But, you know, perhaps the if you get to know the police in town, you might find a little bit of, uh, you know, get a little bit of guidance from him. And that's exactly what happened. He uh, was uh, he went to the gym and uh, really kind of gained a great respect for the cops because the cops were good to him. And he sort of had that respect for authority uh, that uh you know was kind of kind of placed him at odds with uh, some of the uh, social wins at the time we're speaking with mark cram jr about his terrific new biography of one of the greatest fighters one of the greatest athletes of the 20th century smoking joe the life of joe frazier of course he was the heavyweight champion of the world uh, after muhammad ali was banned from boxing and he retained his undefeated uh a status as heavyweight champion of the world by defeating Ali on March 8th, 1971, the first of their three fights, arguably the biggest sports event in the history of the world, right up there, certainly with Dempsey Tunney to its soldier field in 1927. That fight in particular was so big. It was such a gigantic cultural moment. Um, and those pictures of Frazier and his floral green trunks, you know, are, are burned into our memory. Right. Uh, what what does winning that fight say to us about who Joe Frazier was as a fighter and a man? Well, to begin with, uh, one of the fascinations with Frazier, and you could say this for Ali as well, can you think of any athlete who's put their body on the line the way they those two did in that fight and in all three other fights, really? Deathmatch. Uh, and it's an interesting thing. Um, I remember Ali once saying that if you want to see me get beat, don't talk about my religion. Tell me how great I am. You know, butter me up. <laughs> well, don't don't talk about my religion. Don't get me mad. Well, that's exactly what he did with Joe. By the time Joe stepped in the ring that night in March of 71, no one was going to beat him. No one. Not Ali, not Dempsey, not Lewis. No one was going to beat him that night. He was so focused and and ready to go. Now, the interesting thing was he, he did win the undisputed title, but there was a lot of – he got very upset by the idea that it was – he sort of had a, a – it was kind of an illegitimate uh, uh, hold that he had on the title. It was undisputed because – Ali had been forced out of boxing. Exactly. And and he was um and Ali himself, 
you know, fed that narrative the ne- <laughs> almost within 24 hours of the fight. You know, he was putting that narrative out there that Joe was somehow an illegitimate uh, champion. Well, he would say that he was the greatest on one, a great champion on one hand, but in the next breath, he would say that there was some illegitimacy about his hold on the title. So he was always working, Joe, uh, working on his uh, psyche that way. And Joe, Joe particularly found that uh, to be uh, uh, aggravating. You know, I mean, uh, uh, the interesting thing though is if if Joe had fought Ali in '67, which is a big question, they were were trying to arrange it before Ali went into the, you know, uh, was put into exile. I think Ali would have handled Joe fairly easily, I think, at that time. So they were meeting at the perfect time in their careers in many ways. Speaking with Mark Cram Jr. again about his new book, Smoke and Joe, The Life of Joe Frazier. And and it's a terrific book and a terrific tribute to um, one of the most important athletes of all time. But for you personally, Mark, writing this book, as we discussed in our first segment, you know, someone who is so closely associated, the subject that is Joe Frazier, with your father as well, uh, who died now 17 years ago at the age of 69 after his great career. What did it mean to you on a personal level? Um, and, and how did it um, connect you with your father again? Well, my dad, uh, as you say, passed away in 2002. And um, he's really never far from my thoughts. Um, you know, uh, we we were very close and... Uh, I admired him tremendously and his uh, his work and uh, you know I just never dreamed that I would be doing a book on Joe Frazier. I figured that was his that was his uh, um, you know area of expertise and his territory and you know editors over the years had asked me to write about Joe. They lived they knew that I lived in Philadelphia. In fact, a book editor in 2008 asked me to consider a biography of Joe, and I rejected it at the time. But, you know, it was I was sitting in my office about, uh, I don't know, four or five years after Joe died, 2006, 2016, I guess it was, and uh, I just got to thinking that, uh, uh, you know, if somebody writes this book 10 years from now, everybody that knew Joe is going to be virtually gone and they'll have to write the book. They'll have to write the book from uh, clips, you know, and sort of piece it together and not having any firsthand knowledge. And, and as soon as I thought of that, you know, I, I became flooded with chills. I felt like there was, so, it was some sort of cosmic uh, uh, traffic light that was turning from red to green. And uh, I just had a sense that my father's spirit was with me. And I'm, as I'm talking to you now, I have these same chills. I just feel like, you know, uh, he he just, uh, you know, was with me every step of the way with this. As I said, it's it's a terrific testament, not only not only to Joe, but uh, to your dad's legacy as well, if I may say. Mark Cram Jr.'s new thank you new biography of Joe Frazier is Smoking Joe. And Mark, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having joined us. Thank you, Jeremy. I do appreciate it. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. Tune in again next weekend. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern time.